Dave, how's it going? Good afternoon. Um, didn't answer the question. No, you didn't. I'm doing fine. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah. Now we're sitting here at the Boat Rocker Brewery. You might even hear one of the um, tanks bubbling in the background, which is exciting. It's a first. genuine. We're not lying about being yeah, here. Yeah, it's a first for the podcast. Yeah. We should almost point a microphone over there just to give it the. <laughs> Or post photos. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now we're sitting here with Matt Houghton from Boat Rocker Brewery. Hello. How are you? Very really well. Good. Yep. And we've just been fortunate enough to, to taste a whole bunch of your barrels and you've shown us around and it's, it's been... Up very been, hospitable. Very hospitable and also um, pretty exciting. Yeah. I think you I was excited just seeing the wall of barrels. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> now you've been operating for a few years, Matt. Started off as a contract brewery with two uh, Pilsner and a pail. That's right. And yep. now you're... Um, branching out into a lot more interesting things? Yeah, look, I think uh, our barrel program is probably the, the most exciting thing for me personally. We started out as a contract brewer where you brew 7,000 litres of beer at one hit. It needs to be volume, production, everything needs to be sort of more cost effective. Um, and we didn't have the, the ability back then nor the, nor the you know, persuasion to my wife that... Um, you know, let's do 7,000 litres of sour beer as a contract brewer. Um, I'd love <laughs> That's to. That's a hard sell. That's a hard it? sell. Yeah. And it's a hard sell to everyone. I think. It is, yeah, yeah. So the only way to get there was to, to build our own brewery where we could make our, our, you know, our more regular beers and then start a, a barrel program, albeit modest. Um, before we go too far, we should say we're drinking a beer that's not one of yours. Dave, you brought this one along. You want to quickly give a shout-out to the beer? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I brought the... Um, Epicurean Coffee and Fig Imperial Oatmeal Stout from Epic, and this is a 2011 vintage, which I think we sort of worked out was the first vintage of this. Yeah, what it was. It's been carefully looked after. Yeah, I assure you, and um, kind of tastes a bit more figgy. I think you mentioned. Yeah, I get a lot. Than of, I remember it being. I, I think I've only had the those. 2012 besides this one. So, um, and it's been a while as well. So, it's incredibly smooth. Matt, what are your thoughts on this one? I'm just having a mouthful right then. Yeah. Well, it's beautiful. It's I, I really get pronounced uh, coffee notes mm. coming through with it, with it a really nice sort of fig character. Mm. Uh, I think a, a beer at this temperature, obviously, the it's a, a lovely temperature to, to drink an imperial stout at, particularly one with with, with coffee. Yeah, look, I think it's great texture, mouthfeel, palate length. Yeah, it's just a really nice. You know, it's, it's not a big, thick, oily imperial stout, but I don't think it needs to be. Otherwise, it's got the the lighter notes and the fruity notes from the mm. coffee as well as the figs. Oh, I like it. It's Cracking, cracking. The beer. coffee on the aroma is a lot more uh, noticeable and pronounced. I remember it. Mm. It's been probably a year or two since I've had the last one, but um, it's probably a good advertisement to tuck them away if you have got any bottles at home. Which yeah. is surprising, I think. Doesn't coffee sort of generally yeah, die, away? die away a little bit? That's why uh, I thought there might have been more pronounced fig, but definitely on the aroma, the um, the coffee is certainly present. Mm. Cold drip. I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering how you can keep the coffee because you're right. The coffee mm. does fade over time so yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued to, yeah. have you done any beers with coffee? well we had a we had a pilot batch of a beer with a coffee that was going to be a smoked coffee porter um, sorry got a squeaky chair but the the coffee character was really pronounced at first mm. but then what we found with the smoke and the coffee it almost gave you that impression that we were drinking burnt coffee, mm. and so it was not a it was not a pleasant pleasant beer. Um, so we didn't proceed. Mm. It's just one of those you have this idea. We, our original intention for it was uh, red eye gravy, which is uh, an American sort of Elvis's favourite fast food or, or diner food, which was uh, a mix of bacon, um, gravy, essentially pork fat, mixed with coffee. 
and then poured over like a, a corn cakes. Sounds disgusting, but it's no, that sounds be, really good. It's I don't know. Meant, meant to be really nice, but so we thought, oh, let's let's, let's make a, a smoke smoked uh, coffee beer, but it just didn't have that effect that we wanted. So, how do they mix coffee in? Is it? What, I think they use coffee for um, like meat rubs and marinades and right. stuff quite frequently. Yeah. So, yep. so just like coffee grinding, do you think that they? Oh, this one was actually just using the recipe we found for red eye gravy was just to get the, oh, the, like the, the percolated coffee. drip, drip oh, right. coffee, okay. yeah. which is probably the most revolting form yeah. of coffee available <laughs> known to man. But that just seemed, to, yeah. But we didn't use that. Obviously, we we used uh, ground beans and did an extract and um, yeah, it's just yeah. Back to the drawing board for that one, but that's the whole, that's the whole point of it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Now, one of the beers we just tasted was the Ramjet Mark II, yep. which is probably, in terms of Epic, uh, epic sorry, and, and your ranges, it's the closest thing you guys would do to that, that yep. Imperial Stout. You're telling us about the bourbon, bar- oh, sorry, the whiskey barrels that you had. Um, they were, you said they were dripping with whiskey. They were. We actually upended a few, and, and the, the barrels themselves were. Thankfully, the, the distillery workers like us um, and realised we needed a quick dram, so we we upended a couple and, and, and got a few hundred mils out. I'm sure. The, don't tell David Vitale, the owner of the, the, the distillery, he'd probably be berating the boys. I'm but, sure he's um, a listener. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it was good, but it, it provided so much whiskey character and and. Uh, Almost overpowering character to the to the beer itself that we've had to do a, a blender to, which we're soon three weeks time we'll be packaging up some ramjet so um, we'll get the blend just right nice mix of sweetness and, and whiskey notes. Um, I think the blend's a good idea, but uh, given how much booze is in the current iteration of ramjet, it didn't drink as high. Yeah, I because you said it was about fifteen percent currently. Oh, look, that, that's estimated. We, yeah. we and, it's, and the way I've calculated this is. Partner here, say from the distillery workers, they say in a hundred litre barrel, there's approximately six to seven litres of whiskey still in the staves. They've calculated the evaporation rate of whiskey over time in the, in the barrel, but then when they empty the barrel, they realise that there's obviously not enough, so it's obviously got to be in the staves. So that being the case, we're assuming that we get maybe 80% extraction from the beer, the whiskey into the beer. So from that, we then calculated that if it's really dripping and there's another 200 mils in each barrel as well, then the beer that went in there was approximately uh, almost 10%. Mm. And the, the spirit, the whiskey itself, is was at about 62.5%. We just did some rough calculations. We ended up with you know cl- yeah. close to 15%, really. Um, maybe a fraction less, maybe 14 and a half, something like that. So What was the, uh, the first version? What was the APV on that one? 10.2, mm. um, which uh, it's... A big beer, and certainly, but it, I think one of the things that that uh, we're we're sort of a little bit guilty of. We, we like the idea of, of beers being drinkable, um, and I'm, I don't mean every beer should be drinkable, of course. But we <laughs> want people to go back for a second, and at a 10.2 percent, it's questionable whether that's that's responsible production of alcohol. I don't know, but it's we want people to have more, and I think by doing that with a big beer, sweetness can often be that factor that balances out the alcohol quite considerably. I mean, a beer should always be about balance and then how far you want to push that balance, I suppose, is, is up to personal preference and ideology of, of the brewery as well. Um, but we always like a beer to be virtually sessionable to an extent, mm. with the exception of some of the barrel beers that are purely one-offs. But even then, I want someone to drink two of our extreme sour beers. Um, well, it's kind of the thing, there's times when you, you have a a big beer and you have you know half a glass and you think that was great 
I never want to do that again, though. Yeah, it's those sort of really intense beers that can, I think, get to a bit too much. Yeah, absolutely. Look, experiential beers are definitely worth the trip because that's a lot of the fun of human creativity is making a beer that's got a real craziness about them. And Moondog are a classic example of, you know, they've got some awesome regular beers, but they've also got, you know, some really wacky far-out beers. I think mm. that, that's part of the creativity of brewing and being a brewer. Um, but I'm always... I'm, I'm sort of a little bit of a, a pig in the night. I like to, you know, I've always got it for seconds after having something, so I'll, I'm, I'm, much, I'm much the same with the beer. But you're right, an experience of a beer, particularly if it's an ingredient that's crazy and weird and, and wacky, is, is fantastic. It's, mm. it's part of the charm of, of what we do, I think. So we t- sampled um, a couple of different beers that were high in ABV, and uh, all of them drank well under that. So I think that's probably... Um, more in line of what your ethos is, and even yeah. if that's a big beer, it doesn't taste that big, so we're yeah. more inclined to that's quite go right. Back to it, yeah, yeah. Look, and that's again, it's a purposeful choice of, of we start a, a really high gravity beer. We know we're adding spirit. We're not adding, well, technically adding spirit. The ATO man doesn't know we're not adding spirit. <laughs> but, I'm uh, sure he listens as well. <laughs> yeah, but the remaining spirit in the barrel, which we're allowed to do, um, is and then as long as the beer finishes at a high gravity, then it's that, that again. It's that balancing act, and so the more sweet a beer is, the more likely you are to be able to make it sessionable because it confuses the palate and the brain into thinking mm. that it's it's actually not that big a beer, mm. even though you'll you can pick it up with with sometimes when you get that nice little warming down the yeah, down the throat. Yeah. On the uh, the other extreme end of of I guess ABV, there's a bottle over there of the the mint. The yep. Blunderweiss, or Blunderweiss style, I guess is, is what you call it, is that right? Yeah, well, again, we're playing a bit, bit of deference to, to Blunderweiss is, I'm pretty sure it comes under the EU directive of being a, a, a particular known for that region, I can't remember yeah, the exact yeah, terminology the, for it. but There's a, there's a few sort of um, iterations of that, I think, where you know, champagne is obviously, you can't call it anything but champagne, but yeah. Blunderweiss is the other way where... It's a bit grey and no one really enforces it. Yeah. Maybe so I'm not, yeah. I like to sort of play a little bit of, of deference, I suppose, and well, I could call it champagne of the north, but the, the French should probably sue me for, <laughs> for using the, for the word for, uh, champagne. But, um, yeah, look, that, that's a, another, just a sessionable Berlinovice without being extreme acidity. And I think that's probably traditionally where they were, in terms of balance, they weren't always lip-puckeringly sour. Modern incarnations definitely are at that point. But, again, I want someone to have... It needs to be cleansing, and I want people to go back for, for more. And I love a really sour, sour beer. Mm. And we could, you know, potentially try and get it that that sour. But I think we've we've been playing around with the way we produce that blend of ice. Um, we've been working with a, a Danish company that provides us with bacteria, lactobacillus, and we've discussed at great length about the pH curve of lactobacillus working to produce blend of ice. And we're we've come with a couple of strains. Uh, uh, we started off with Delbrookii, which was the first strain that White Labs and, and Y East released, and we then worked into. We're never happy with the, 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 the acidity level, so we then went from uh, Delbrookii. We're looking at Brevis a little bit, but we're then going to uh, a strain that's predominantly used in cheese making and, and feta. Uh, called Lactobacillus helveticus. It's got a fantastic name. That's a great <laughs> name. As soon as I saw it, I thought, cracker. Um, we, we did a trial with effectively different strains and different mixes and different uh, cell counts, um, or units, they call them, um, of Lactobacillus. We ended up with 
uh, our choice being Helveticus, really clean, pure sort of lactic character, but still a little bit of other character in the, in the beer. And it gets down to about 3.4 during the, the kettle ferment, and then it drops another point, point 0.1 or point 0.2 in the tertiary ferment, in the normal conical fermenter, and then it, it raises a little bit just towards the end, um, natural sort of raise in pH at the end, up to about 3.3. 3. Mm. But we've had some beer, and that acidity is quite nice and deceptive when you're tasting it. It's going, it's not that super sour, but mm. it's still, you know, below 3.4. And traditionally, uh, a blender vice is between 3.2 and 3.4. Mm. So we're sort of at that point, but I reckon there's maybe a little bit of lactic acid being thrown at some of the, the modern versions, which there's nothing wrong with because, again, it's, it's a food product. Yeah. And we're craft brewers, so we can do whatever the hell we want, really. It's, no, there's no rules around there's no rules, kind of no, exactly. Yeah. If it tastes good, do it. That beer, um, it was my first beer of the year this year on New Year's Day, and it was perfect. And I've had it again since, only one other time, and I I think I'd had a 10%, you know, triple IPA or whatever it was, and then a, a whiskey-based cocktail. And both times that beer has just been that cleansing, reviving kind of, you know, in a pint, this is exactly what I want to have right now. Yeah, that, well, that, that's something that I think is is key to, to a lot of those beers. That they need to just be cleansing. A sour beer, if you go down the, the funky route with great depth and complexity, like a, a, a lambic, um, you can sit on a, a bottle or a glass for hours and mm. just have a you know you just think about all the things that's going on. But a blend of ice is pretty straightforward, and it is there to to refresh and to cleanse the palate. Mm. Um, I think that's the beauty of them. And that particular one is one that you age on Chardonnay. Is that That's right? right. Yeah. Look, I, this the, f- the first incarnation of of the blend of ice was aged in much older Chardonnay barrels. The the most recent batch that's conditioning at the moment uh, were fresh Chardonnay barrels, so that the Chardonnay character is a lot more pronounced. Um, it's probably a, a different, a slightly different version again, and that's the nature of running a barrel program. We we sort of we're beholden to what barrels we can get, mm-hmm. and we didn't. We'd like to keep on reusing the same barrels again and again for blend of ice, but we turned the previous ones. We put something else in them. Well, after we'd emptied them, so <laughs> we're sort of like, okay, well, what did you put on them? Um, I think we. I'm just trying to think. I think we put. I may have put some saison, and then we did a. And we had a couple leftovers. We put some um, Flemish red, mm. even though it was a, a a white wine barrel. That's was just a. We needed the barrel space. We needed barrels for the <laughs> Flemish red. So, yeah. We also tried um, some blend of ice directly out of the out of the tank, and you're planning to release that without the aging? Yeah, eventually. I think this batch will go into it. The thought is, when we package up the triple, uh, some Chardonnay barrel aged triple, we'll then put that blend of ice into the triple barrels. Um, but the more we taste it, the more we go, "Crikey, I'd just love to have that with with." With some fruit or by itself, just sparkling, refreshing. It's, it's a very neutral, refreshing. Really really yeah, it'll be a, a really good, you know, mid-strength beer. Mm. I think Melbourne might be ready for a, a mid-strength Berliner Weiss in in four packs. But well, based on your um, experience with with them at um, you know, last summer time, how did it go? How did, were people? Did you sell a lot of it? Or yeah, look, we didn't really make that much. We we made about seven barrels worth, I think, and, and most we put most of it into kegs. Yeah, um, that that ticked along fairly well. Um, a lot of the keg customers, I don't know the bar customers. I don't know if they were, they, they sort of didn't know what to expect. I think then yeah, the, the package flew out the door and it was pre-sold and, and went 
crazy. So, mm. which is a good thing. But I just think it's probably a little bit too much. In, in terms of packaging, I love the champagne look, the champagne bottle, my sort of tongue-in-cheek with the the sash and everything else, just yep. to try and you know make it look a bit more special than than a three and a half percent wheat beer, sour wheat beer, effectively. Um, but I'd love to have it in a a three thirty ml bottle in a four pack mm. that's probably more cost effective and more affordable for everyone to have a bit of a sour ale. But then again, this has had Brettanomyces, so with the Brett um, that we we don't have the tank space at the moment to have a, a Brett dedicated um, Bright and Fermenter, which hopefully one day we will, but saving up for that one. Yeah. Did the first batch have the first batch had Brett in it? It well? did, yep. yeah. Uh, Brettanomyces bruxellensis, yep. just the, the straight variant as opposed to, to um, Brett Trois. Mm. I think that uh, low ABV Saison and Blinnerweiss are like perfect styles for Australian summers. So surely in the evolution of our little industry, that's going to become more uh, prevalent. So yeah, look, I'm more I, than happy to see that. I agree. Yeah. Like, I think um, people like uh, La Serene are, are playing around with all of that. I mean, they're starting doing barrel stuff now as well. So there's, there's interest. There's enough demand. I think as long as the quality remains really high as it is, I think there's a, there's a lot of experimental sour stuff, but, but those who are making good quality sour stuff um, or are playing around with, with Brettanomyces and things like that, you know who stand out because they're, they're the sort of beers you want to go back to again and again. And like La Serena Classic, you know, you want to keep on drinking some of their beers. So mm. it's just, you know, it's a no-brainer really. And then there's a reason why, you know, the sort of the big Belgian names in that industry have been around for, for you know, not centuries but um, decades. Yeah, uh, and there's yeah. a reason why they all sell out as soon as they hit shelves because they do it right, basically. Exactly, and I think that's that's something that good beer makes you know makes sense, but it takes time to make it. So those and I, I know La Serena are starting a barrel program as well, mm. and they know not to rush it. You can't. It's just sort of you got to wait. You've just got to have the cash flow to, to make all the beer in the first place and, and leave it for three years. But So is that where your um, sort of core range comes in, your Smash, Hot Bomb, um, Alpha Queen? Yeah, that's right. The I, I like the, the core range beers and they're just, they're approachable everyday beers for, for everybody really is what they are. They're not, they're not too crazy because that's, we've got to sell that to make money to pay for um, the, the barrels. That's mm. as, as simple as that. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I'd love to, unless we had a bar on site, I could maybe do less of that and more barrel stuff, but we don't really have the room for a bar on site. and It's not part of our business plan. We're, yeah. The aim is to have this site as a production brewery. Maybe one day we'll, you know, we'll go off site and have a, have a barrel room or something like that, but you know, that's, it, it takes time and money as well. So, you know. so people have got to keep buying your core range in order to fund that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Buy more of my, yeah, no, no. <laughs> No, well, I think that's the, that's the beauty of where the market is at the moment, is that there's, people are experimenting a lot more and they're prepared to, they'll always have a regular and hopefully they choose one of ours as a, you know, on a rotational basis, you know, after a month they'll come back and grab a, a hot bomb or something else, but yeah. then in between they'll, they'll try a, a sour beer from somebody else and it's the beauty of craft beer, you choose the sort of styles and you get to know what, a, what sort of beers a brewery makes, mm. I think you sort of go, oh, I'm going to grab one of them and then... Maybe two weeks later you might try something else from another brewery, but you always go back to that one and mm. you sort of work on a rotational basis. Yeah, I know my, my fridge beers always rotate 
pretty frequently, and uh, Hot Bomb was was definitely one of mine for a while there, and I've yep. you know it's been replaced by something else, and I'm sure I'll come back to it again. <laughs> yeah. um, but I noticed, Dave, you enjoy that smash. I really enjoyed the smash. Yeah, the beer we tried before that was a very big barley wine, and um, it was perfect afterwards. It uh, cut through it a little bit. Uh, it got affected by it because I couldn't taste a whole heap yeah. after that <laughs> beer. But um, once I sort of regained my taste bud composure, it's just a really well-made, clean, solid beer. Mm. And we kind of talked about Smash being a little bit misunderstood in the market. The, the first question that I had about it was, that's a home-brewing term, single malt and single hop. And we sort of said, you know, homebrewers were questioning that and all that. Can you tell us sort of how that's been received or the approach to Smash as well? Yeah, certainly. We started out with the intention of being a single malt and single hop beer. We did some pilots. The history of it was was a, a Gabs beer prior, probably a couple of years earlier. We weren't too happy with the result. That's when we were contract brewing. We then came up with a, did a pilot. We just found that a single malt and a single hop just was lacking. Um, so we, we came up with the idea of several malt and several hops. Still, still fitted the acronym. Still correct. And and then, uh, yeah, and it's it's a it's a sort of it's not a unique beer, I suppose, amongst Australians. But it's not often that people we don't dry hop that beer at all. It's purely uh, hop, basically a, a pressurized hop back, which mm. is a little Dalek looking creature over there um, oh, well. that we just load up with about ten kilos of uh, flower hops, Australian flower hops, and then. Because under pressure, we can evacuate all the air. Plus, we can. The theory, anyway, is that we we can pump the pump. Obviously, has quite a bit of pressure as it's going towards the the fermenter. And that pressure is essentially forcing a lot of the the oil extract out of the mm. out of the hops hop flowers. Um, and we only use ten kilos only. It sounds like a lot, but in two thousand liters, we use about a hundred grams in the boil in the fermenter in the in the kettle. We then Add at whirlpool maybe other two or three hundred grams, and then the rest of the flavour, aroma, and bitterness comes from the, the flower hops. So, because and it's been a while since I've had that beer. So, um, but my memory of it was a really sort of gentle stone fruit character that was still quite prominent. Yep, but yeah, it wasn't you know in your face hops. No, and it's, it's not. Just, it's just, but it's there, and it, it's really it's still prominent. Yeah, um, yeah. Is that what you? Yeah, absolutely. You had? And that's what makes it. Maybe more enjoyable is not really fair, but what sets it a little bit aside from a lot of golden ales around is it yeah. still is prominent there. It, so, um, it has something, a point of difference, I mm. think. And yeah, which is what we wanted. The fear, uh, and I'm always mindful of every other brewery that, that exists, just because you don't want to tread on toes, you don't want to appear like you're copying them. And I'm really determined to not be copying people. So we didn't want to look like a Stone and Wood Pacific Ale. We didn't want it to look like a... Mountain goat steam ale, but we wanted to have a an Australian hopped light golden ale that mm. was, and it's really hard to not have something that Galaxy <laughs> is predominant. And you just go, well, let's let's cut back on the Galaxy and let's use Victoria's Secret and Ella, mm. and see if that's going to work. And there's a little bit of Galaxy in there, but it, we wanted to keep it to the bare minimum. And you definitely get yeah, that stone fruit or melony, border on pineapple flavors from those kind of hops as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we wanted. When it's fermenting, it really comes across as smelling like Tropicana. Mm. That's the, the the aroma coming off the the fermented business in, intense. And it's just yeah, it's fascinating. Really seeing what Australian hops can do and, and how they translate to, to beer production. Mm. So yeah, it, it it is interesting watching Australian hops sort of uh, I guess mature and people use them more and and the that kind of yeah, gentle tropical fruit 
aroma versus the New Zealand hops, which are, you know, pungent and, and rich and they have that sort of um, uh, New Zealand Savion Blanc kind of characters which come out a yeah. lot. And sort of seeing the two sort of evolve separately, but you know, the beers that can be made with either are, are so interesting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the, the hop development in Australia is, is we're probably, you know, a few years behind New Zealand in terms of the development of, of these really quite specific aroma and flavour hops, but they've, they've really caught along in the last few mm. years. The, the, the variety and quality are really quite phenomenal. Mm. And seeing the evolution of New Zealand hops, as you say, from the, that whole gooseberry to Sauvignon Blanc character through to um, the hop character of Australian tropical fruits and then the Americans with the citrus, mm. it's really quite fascinating how, you know, both hop variety, terroir, if there's going to be... It's still under debate, I think, amongst a few people, but it must have some play. I think if you've got you know, the same hops grown in America and then grow them here or grow them in New Zealand, mm. they're really quite different. So um, soil characteristics, um, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of things that, that making the whole hop world really quite quite fascinating. Mm. Now, we touched on um, sour beers before with the, the Blin of Ice and mentioned um, you know Belgian styles and... We were fortunate enough to get a taste of the, the pseudo lambic, P, P lambic, which to me, and I think Dave, you can agree with me that it smelled exactly what I want a lambic to smell like. It smells it's like the aroma is of a Belgian lambic. Mm. Yeah. That's what it smells oh, like. Yeah. That's good. It's yeah, look, promising. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think that the barrel you tasted was a year old, effectively. So the acidity is only going to get more intense and, and quite, quite, uh, quite pronounced over the coming little while. We'll add some fruit. Uh, this summer, and that will increase, those two barrels will increase in acidity substantially with that extra sugar sauce for, for both the Brett and, and the PDO that's there. They'll be they'll be very happy, so I think you'll see a, a much more pronounced acidity. So what's your plan with uh, that kind of, that beer? Are you going to get more barrels going on and blend it back like a Gers, or are you... Yeah, absolutely. We'll, 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 the aim is find more room for more barrels and to start making more. We, we, we pushed our brew house to the, the limit Making it doing a traditional uh, turbid mash, which is a, a an antiquated uh, Belgian style and way due to their taxation system way back when, and we they've normally got they've got an extra kettle and an extra um, holding tank, which we've only got a two vessel brew house so and a hot liquor tank. But to transfer all the beer from and transfer wort and do a basically a, a very fancy form of decoction mashing called a turbid mash um, takes about. 10 hours to do and produce about a little bit over a thousand litres of beer, whereas normally in 10 hours we can do uh, about 22 if it was a, a normal pale ale. So, But it's worth it, I think. So, yeah, a little bit extra effort. But we'll definitely ramp it up. We need to. What do you think your approach will be in uh, increasing the barrel program where you have to get a, a secondary or a larger venue? Yeah, I think we'll have to do that. Maybe, but again, that's a lot of money, and we need sure. to we have to fund that somehow. The other option is we we try and keep the barrels out on the floor as they are, mm-hmm. but that means cooling in the shed, and we need to insulate the roof better, which is probably a cheaper option. Might be a, an initial upfront capital injection, but I think it'll it'll allow us to have a lot more barrels. Um, but already, it's pretty full in here, mm. and when we're packaging at full tilt, and we've got you know two full bright tanks, we need another. You know, the, the brewery fills up really, really quickly. But, um, yeah. So do you think in a, um, in a building like this, the roof insulation will uh, keep the temperature up at, the, up at that height 
I would uh, still down at the required level. No, not by itself. I think it'll just help maintain. Sure. And we've got a um, a refrigeration mechanic. Um, I'm hoping I, I hope I believe him or he's right. But he told us that we can actually use a cool room uh, condensing coil and use that as your form of, of chilling because most cool room condensers are, are used to going down to about minus 18 for it's a freezer mm. or around the you know the zero mark at least. But the curve of um, temperature versus area to cool down is exponential if you want to raise the temperature about 20. So we had a, a freezer cool room coil running at 18 or 20 degrees, even though it was designed to, to chill a space like that down to minus 18, then we'd actually be able to keep this area at 20 degrees. But it would mean that thing would be running all the time unless we insulated the, the roof sure, pretty yeah. well. So. It's doable, but I, I did some calculations for roof insulation, and for a roof this size, it's about 5k for the actual material. Another cool room condensing coil is another 5k, so it's, it's probably a 15k exercise by the time you actually get it all done. So that's cheaper than a second property, though, isn't oh, it? Oh, it is yeah, well, exactly. Well, that's the thing. A second property, you're looking at you know, uh, you know, 40 grand per annum, depending on the size of the property. You could go smaller, yeah. So it's still a lot of money, and then extra. Tax and I won't get into details. Are, are you All le- for us to have some girth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are you learning a lot of things? Uh, you know, insulation, water runoff. We spoke off mic before. Are these things you knew about coming into this, or have you had a steep learning curve? Yeah. Look, I, to an extent. I mean, a lot of it. I mean, I, I've been reading about becoming and starting a brewery and becoming a brewer since I was, you know. Because they need high to a grasshopper, but I was a bit, I was close to close to legal legal drinking age anyway. But um, <laughs> since I was about seventeen, I've been you know madly dreaming of of, of owning one. So it's taken me 33, 23 years to get there. But um, it's, You're aging yourself ten years. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I think that's what it does running a brewery. But, um, yeah, look, you read a lot, and some things you've definitely had to learn on the fly. Um, you know, learning, I mean, putting some things together. I mean. I think you need to have a, a fair bit of manual sort of not only dexterity but also just understanding of, of how to use a drill and a, and a hammer and everything else and how to put some, some poly pipe together. But again, I'd never really constructed much glycol piping before. But once <laughs> you get, come up in your, in your previous yeah, life. No, yeah. but, but once you learn how to do it, it's actually really it's not difficult. So you just mm-hmm. got to be prepared to ask people um, if you don't know, and hope that they're the right person to ask them, <laughs> and then I hope they can give you a bum steer. But for the most part, yeah, we've 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 learned quite a bit of things, but a lot of it's you know the things we just have no way of knowing in, in the time frame that we need to know it in. Mm. We always outsource, so like the the brewery floor is all you know epoxy um, screed and I stuff like that. I seem to remember so. uh, it was probably a couple of years ago now. You um, when you were. Uh, establishing yourself here, you did a few pieces on Crafty Pine about the trials and tribulations of setting up a uh, a brewery, and I think the floor was one of the biggest sticking points with you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Look, there were a lot of issues we had. We originally got a, uh, thought about getting a concreter in because we wanted to have the sloping floor. Um, the The time taken for a concrete floor to set um, is about thirty days, depending on humidity. Um, and the concreters we got in touch with the most unreliable concreters I could ever imagine, and they were supposedly very good ones. I hope they're not listening to this, but he was just going, crikey, there's no way I'm going to entrust. You, you vastly underestimate our listening. Yeah. <laughs> Overestimate, maybe. Yeah. But I, I just didn't want to, um, you know, you just didn't feel confident handing over $20,000 to somebody who 
didn't really understand what you were trying to do and couldn't guarantee that the concrete was, you know, will it crack? Well, it might. Well, so what, I, but <laughs> I want it to crack. Answer, yeah. you know, yeah, that's not, you're, not, you're not winning me over on that. And look, having said that, in hindsight, we've actually noticed as well, we've got epoxy coating where the expansion cracks are on the concrete. Um, yeah, live and learn, but we sh- and that's where a, a polyurethane coating on our floor would have been better because it actually has some give. Mm. And our original aim was to have concrete with polyurethane so that even if there were cracks in the concrete, the polyurethane would, would have enough flex to be able to cope with it. Mm. Um, but we just couldn't afford that. So that's part of the thing you learn setting up a brewery is you've got a budget, you're always going to blow it, and then you've got to work out what you can compromise on and what you can't compromise on. So... It's we one. Of, oh, sorry, go ahead. It's, it's one of the most interesting things I've sort of learned talking to brewers is the ways like they approach building a brewery differently, and how everyone has a slightly different setup. And it everyone's learning little bits and pieces as they go. Like like you know the floor means a whole a whole lot depending yeah. on what you coat it with. Um, yeah, I think I think it's fascinating. Yeah, look, I think that's part of the the character of a brewery as well as how they how they set it up and, and how they market themselves because at the end of the day it's very much an individual personal most most craft brewers are tiny and it's set up with the passion of one or two people who want to make something mm. and how they go about setting it up or creating it leads to the result which is their beer um, and you know everyone's going to make some mistakes unless you're formally trained in you know setting up breweries I don't know what the degree is for that but <laughs> you know it's, it's one of those things you're just going to have to make mistakes and from mistakes you learn hopefully and mm. then you make a better product at the end yeah. we like finding out what lessons are learned from anyone we talk to pretty much because it's always a different answer normally which is quite funny so before we went on air I asked you about um, your profession prior to jumping in the deep end and we talked about how you did professional photography yep. when you were a photographer uh, dreaming about building a brewery did you ever think that you might wonder if a polyurethane coated floor was going to be important to the <laughs> not really no I must say it hadn't really crossed my mind too much I was thinking to be fair I mean most people I think get blinded and you, and I was blinded by the, the shiny stainless it's one of those things you just go stainless steel is stainless steel great is to look at it is fantastic stuff and you just go and you, you sort of cast you, you ignore the part about the, the drainage but yeah. now I actually find myself when I'm going to other people's breweries I don't Look at the stainless. I just sort of look at the, yeah, the more functional things like the, the coating, glycol yeah. piping or the floor coating or where the drainage runs to <laughs> yeah. and where's the trade waste and all this sort of. Tell me about tell me stuff. about your wastewater. Eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's one of those. Yeah, I guess it's one of those interesting aspects, I suppose, or not so interesting, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, starting out when you were, you know, maybe not quite legal age. Um, what beers sort of triggered your love for beer? Did you have a you know, a moment, or you've always kind of looked to other beers, or yeah. Look, it was a there was a, um, a famous beer writer uh, called Michael Jackson, who I think passed away in ninety one or ninety two. I think. Um, uh, uh, sorry, two thousand two. Yeah, yeah. I'd say later. Than no, he wrote a book in nineteen ninety two. Yeah, two thousand and two, and he was fairly instrumental in terms. Of when I was uh, a teenager, fifteen, sixteen, he had a show called The Beer Hunter on SBS. Mm. Oh, did that screen on SBS here? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. it was, I didn't know that. It was. Fa- I mean, it was terrible recording production yep. it was the, the the sync between picture and and uh, um, sound was out but it was fascinating seeing these seeing these beers and his little tour of history this little is was a very interesting sort of character um, and the, it just sort of tweaked my interest and so at that 
stage, my brother was uh, playing around with Cooper's homebrew kits um, and producing some fairly terrible beer. And then, the course, yep. Yep, and then uh, Dad used to try and... He didn't really like Australian beer. He's uh, English, so he didn't really enjoy Australian beer. So he tried finding either German lagers, which were pretty much all he could get, or some, some really old um, English ales mm. um, that always came in quite fancy bottles or, or fancy packaging compared to what I thought. It was quite romantic seeing these labels from overseas. So I really liked that aspect of it initially before I could drink the beers and then when I was old enough to start homebrewing which I started when I was about 18 um, and then started being able to buy some of these beers and, and sort of discovered a little bit more than just VB and Carlton Draft mm. and then I'd always dreamt of travelling overseas um, and it was about 98 that I first went with the backpack and saved up some money and had a little pocket guide to beer uh, from Michael Jackson and ticked off my 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 trip involved uh, landing in Brussels, going to beer bars, then to, to Bruges, beer bars, then jump on a train to Germany, drinking beer effectively, all the while being guided by this little pocket guide to beer to the world's best beers. Um, and it was just a, a fantastic backpacking experience that lasted a year and mm. um, through to, yeah, remember having a uh, really nice Berliner Weiss in, in, a, in a park in Berlin, off to uh, other parts of Belgium and everywhere that, that, that involved good beer um, and that really just opened my mind and that was probably the first time I had a sour beer was in at Cantillon Brewery you may have heard of, of yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, that's been a pretty intense first time as well <laughs> it, it is absolutely and I, I was more fascinated with you know this is Michael Jackson's description of it was, was quite intriguing and going there and part of the brewery tour which wasn't really a tour, it was more... The numbers? The numbers around? Yeah. a piece of paper, that's yeah. what it is. You go upstairs and, and the, you go... The, which, you know. That's my uh, all-time favourite brewery tour because I'm not a huge fan of brewery tours because they tend to go for an hour and whatever. Yeah. Following numbers, oh yeah, see that, see that. Yeah. I can go drink the beer afterwards, it was great. <laughs> but I think that's where that opened my mind to the possibility of what beer is and what it could be and also what... It broke broke my mindset of what what it was because mm. effectively getting a, a turbid sour, hardly carbonated product in a in a glass coming from a, a pitcher like a ceramic pitcher mm. um, was just mind blowing, which has always sort of stayed stayed with me as a, as a in, in pretty well endearing memory, but it's sort of etched into my brain somewhere <laughs> there. So which is great, and that's sort of taking all those experiences and coming back here to. Effectively, you know, in 1999, I think Stella was probably the biggest selling um, beer around town and it was, you know, manufactured under licence. There were a few other micros just starting to get up and, you know, try and put some effort into, into growth. I mean, I think Mountain Goat were doing a little bit there. Mm. But it was pretty bland in terms of the, the beer landscape uh, 15 years ago. It was pretty barren in Australia. Not readily accessible, not like today where you can get an endless variety at the drop of a hat. Um, yeah, so I was determined to try and learn more about brewing. Um, so I did some study as well as just homebrewed every day, really, well, every day, every weekend. My my, uh, yeah, my, my now wife was just thinking I was a, a complete mad scientist with an entire <laughs> double garage dedicated to brewing apparatus and fridges and all these crazy things. And, you know, it was just Does brilliant. she like beer? Um, 
I've taught her to like to like <laughs> beer. She 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 loves Belgian beers. She's not a great fan of just having it. She might like a, a, a little, you know, like the smash she enjoys. I think, but um, it's more the the, the tar- sour tart beers or the ones that have got a bit more complexity and arguably a, a, a different level apart from just a, a traditional mm. English ale or a, or a pale ale. She'll she'll have one, but she'll prefer something a bit more depth. And uh, Belgian beers are kind of designed for you know sharing and eating over food and all that. Yeah, that's yeah. Why they're I guess what, that's why they've made such an impact over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that's we're very much in IPA mode in Australia. I think it's 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 brash and big, and that's 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 how people are, which is a good way to get noticed, and it's a good way to to let people see your beers. But I think the finesse and the 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 skill set is improving. And I think we're going to start seeing more beers that are going to be uh, table ready. And by that I mean for restaurants and. At the moment, most beer lists in restaurants are pathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, Unless you love Peroni. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and they're, they're, they're just beer list beers. They're, they're, not, they're not a beer that a sommelier can go... completely thoughtless. You know what? Yeah. This beer is $45 a bottle, but it will go perfectly with your, with your dish. And the mindset is going to take... It's going to take time to get people used to that because mm. they just go, well, it's just beer. It's all, no, it's not. But, it, you know... I'm going I'm to jump in here for a plug for the series that I'm doing on aleofatime.com, which is about... About that very thing, um, yep. because it's something I'm, I'm passionate about. Because you know, I'm someone that really likes beer and I really like food, and I, I like to go out to restaurants. That's kind of where I spend my money. Yeah. You know, that's my hobby. And then I go to a, a really nice restaurant and I look at the beer list and go, "There's nothing I want to drink here." Um, so, tune into extensive, Alo- well thought out wine list, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, four pages or up to fifty pages or of a wines. separate menu. Yeah, entirely. and then yeah. Six, yeah. six beers, and they're all lagers, and maybe one pale is. Yeah, it doesn't really... It's a bit insulting. Um, so, yeah, tune in, com for that one. <laughs> now, um, I think we might just take a quick break here and come back and we'll talk about the future um, of your barrels. Sounds fantastic. All right, welcome back. Uh, we've just had a short break, and Matt's been kind enough to pour us a um, a glass of the Boat Rocker Ramjet Imperial Stout. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, certainly. Look, it was our first sort of foray into uh, barrel aged uh, beers that were, were non non sour, I suppose. Um, Matt, uh, who works here, used to work at the distillery, and has good contacts at the distillery. Um, and they kindly lent us um, about 10 whiskey barrels that were freshly emptied. We wanted to put something in them, um, and the first thought was a lovely imperial stout, English-style imperial stout. By English, I mean uh, all Maris Otter ba- uh, base malt, um, some other specialties, and then English hops. Not It's all about the, the malt and the whiskey, really. Mm. Um, and yeah, we, we let it age in the, in the barrels for approximately three, three and a half months, four months maybe. Um, packaged it, and then when we first released it, it was probably really pronounced whiskey notes, like pretty full on. We probably released it a, a, a fraction young. Um, but it's mellowed a lot and it's turned into something quite different now that it's aged for, for you know, effectively a year and a half. So it's, it's yeah, it's definitely a, it's, it's a different character. I. Um my first sip of that, I had a, a bit of a beer moment of, 
wow, that was uh, that's aged so beautifully, and it's coming up with almost like a coconut character yep. with some whiskey in there as well. And there's also a little bit of a little bit like dark fruit coming through, mm. which is what I always get from the uh, Samuel Smith Imperial mm-hmm. Stout. Yep. Mm, okay. uh, and when you just when you mentioned that it's an English, I didn't know, never put two and two together. You mentioned this one's an English sort of style. I just it just struck me. It's the same exact character I get from that particular beer, which is one of my favourites. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's holding up really well. Yeah, it is. Look, I think it's was always one of those things. You put an age on a beer label, and it's either. I mean, you want to vintage something because it is. You want to let people know, and you're hoping that slight level of arrogance as well that you hope that people are going to hold on to some for 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 a later date. Um, but we were confident that the beer would age, but you still don't know. And, and is it, is it going to deteriorate or improve? It's, it certainly will change, but I think we found that it's, it's, it's lost that intense whiskey character in your face, um, as you'd expect, and it's just sort of really rounded out quite nicely. How it will be in five years' time, I'm not sure, but it, mm. it's, it's travelling fairly well at the moment. It tastes like there's still a little bit of ageing. It's going to take a bit more ageing to, to mellow out and just... You know, three years' time, I think it's going to be really, really exceptional. Yeah, look, we're looking forward to having some of this. We've, we've only kept 16 cases, actually 15 point, uh, <laughs> 15.14 <laughs> cases at the moment. But um, Thank you. Yeah, oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> look, it's, they're the sort of things that I, I like the idea of, you know, we'll, we'll revisit. Mm. You know, we might have a, a special, you know, dinner. Not that we've, we have, we've had occasionally had things for Good Beer Week. Um, we've got a, a ten litre keg in the cool room that we're saving for a you know Fantastic. maybe for next next good beer week. We mm. we have an event here, the Palette Cleanser, um, yep. and we we cracked one last year, so we might do the same. And, and depends, we might drink it before then. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. I am glad you did put the vintage on the label because as someone who tries to sell us stuff now and again. I get just mad when people don't put the vintage on because I don't remember when I bought them. I pull them out and go, I don't know. You've got to keep a spreadsheet. Well, I did that. I think we we discussed that already. Uh, I don't know if we discussed it on air. On air? No, we have privately, and I tried to do that, and it was too much work. So I've got a good template. You can use my spreadsheet. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) You take one out, and then you've got to update the spreadsheet. Yeah, you put it in. Forget it. You get get it on Google Drive. You can do it on your phone. The convenience of your mobile device. We spoke earlier, um, I think off mic, about you know the, the future and the barrel aging, and um, we've touched on a little bit now. You know, you, you sort of mentioned you want to get sour beers sort of in casks on the bar, or, or if that's a possibility with venues. You know, is that kind of the long term plan, is to to really push that side of it? Yeah, look, I'd like to. I, I had a, a sort of an eye opening moment. There was a um, I think it's called Mode Lambic in in uh, Brussels. Mm. Uh, it's a fairly new bar. It's been around yep. for a couple of years, but um, when my wife and I went travelling before we had kids um, and were able to travel, um, <laughs> it was it was just great to go to a place that really specialised in in lambics. It had other other beautiful Belgian beers and other collaboration beers from overseas as well. Um, but just seeing what they do and then serving lambic from cask mm. um, at the right temperature I think without that's you know, the only place you can get the Cantillon Faro. On yeah, cask, yeah, um, which I think is just brilliant, and that's mm. uh, the bar's gone obviously into it with the right mindset that they're going to treat the beer how the brewer wants it treated. And I think that's something that a lot of bars in Australia are yet to do, and I'll get up my my soapbox in a second. But <laughs> they're all about serving beer at one degree through a glycol system without having different glycol temperatures, or um, they don't have uh, flow control taps so that high carbonated beers, which um, they just 
don't pour very well, they end up wasting too much, they don't order it again because they think they had too much wastage or they call you up and go, there's something wrong with your beer. It's, it's, we're just getting, you know, and it's going, no, it's not. It's just, and this is the problem. We, we either alter our beer to suit them and their pouring methods, which I refuse to do, rightly or wrongly, and then, <laughs> and then we end up with a... So I'd rather try and educate and get bars that are prepared to do it right because making, making good beer is hard work and selling good beer is, is also hard work. There was a, a job, um, the cellar master, that used to be, you know, highly revered, but that that's sort of seems to have gone. The, the, mm. the job doesn't really exist anymore because it it's, was deemed that, you know, let's have serve beer at one degree, you're not going to have any issues, and make the, the publican do all the work. Um, whereas in England, they've still got publicans often work as cellar masters as well, but they take on the role of looking after and serving beer at the right temperature and feeding the, the, the cask beers and doing all the things that, you know, a little bit of extra attention, um, you know, why not? I think it's the biggest thing I've noticed when you're standing at a bar and someone's pouring the beer and they've, you know, they get a bit too much heat on it so they'll just tip it all off and keep topping it up and keep topping it up and you sit in there thinking you've just wasted half a beer yep. if you're doing that every beer you serve. You've just cost yourself a lot of money, you know. If it's got too much heat on it, just just serve, relax. Serve someone else and top it up at the end. Like I don't mind waiting. I'd yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, it's better for the industry if everyone is getting a a well poured beer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we could. You know, Matt and I had a discussion um, about. You know, we probably should serve. You know, carbonate this one lower because it's going to be too hard for people to pour at the pub. And I'm like, yeah, but screw them. Was my <laughs> thought. But we armed it out. It's like you know what. Yeah, fair enough. Because at the end of the day, we want people to reorder. So we did serve a slightly, you know, 0.2 of volume, less carbonation, just because we know that the pubs that it went to don't have flow control taps, mm. and it's going to have foamy issues, and they probably won't order the beer again, or they'll complain. Mm. Um, so it's that, you know, I want to be my way or the highway, but you can't be when you're a small craft brewer. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to bend a little bit, I think. But you're right. It's yeah. How do you think we get to that point? Um, education, I think. Like, well, shows like this is one one way, <laughs> truly, because it's a lot of people don't pay any attention to that. They go to a bar, they get a beer, and they don't see or care if someone's taking a bit long to pour a beer because mm. um, it's not the not their interest. It's there to have a nice drink, mm. and but the the bar owner will because mm. they'll go. We didn't make enough money off. Why are we losing? You know, and they're going down the drain with the with the beer. That is, um, education is the most important thing. Um, and then both for consumer and brewer alike. I think the, the brewer definitely needs to learn a lot more because we, we go into the game knowing a lot, but you never know at all. And mm. so we've got to educate ourselves as well. Do you think it's peculiar that there's a pretty wide understanding that Guinness gets poured a particular way, but that general, more general knowledge isn't extended to anything else? Yeah, look, I find it odd that Guinness gets revered, well, not revered, but it has this quite but that understanding is there. And the yeah. understanding is there, then you go, okay, that's well, Guinness. Mm. And yet, for for other beers... Anything else got poured, delayed as Guinness, people as can't a, do that, man. As someone that um, poured Guinness for three or four years, people were crazy about how you pour it. Yeah. And let's face it, it's marketing. Uh, it, it is, it's, yeah. p- it's pure marketing what they do. But the amount of people that used to tell me how to pour a Guinness every night would it's just like, dude, calm down. It's you know it's coming from the same tap, no matter yeah. what little tweak I give it. 
That's fine. Um, I used to pour Guinness as well, and the amount of people who expected you to do the shamrock oh. in the in the foam, <laughs> yeah, it was ridiculous. All, all the people that would say, one person would say, "Oh, you should do a shamrock," and the other person would say, "No, if you do that, and I don't know, whatever county." That's wrong, and then it's like, oh, what are we doing here? This is such a weird argument. It involves yeah. like, <laughs> it's like latte art. But, uh, yeah, you just go, come on. I don't, I don't need a love heart in my my little, um, you know, yeah. latte that comes in. It's just, it's, it's unnecessary. But it's marketing. You're right. Yeah, the there's the a barista in my building who um, spins his glasses while he pours the milk, so he gets a little round little latte art. But he comes like. I'm sure he does it multiple times a day, but he, whenever I've seen him, he's very close to spilling a lot of coffee. <laughs> and is that worth your little yeah, yeah. thing that you put a lid on afterwards? Uh, uh, yeah, well? yeah. No, exactly. But that was my answer. The, the, the Guinness question uh, is an interesting one because it, you know, it is pure marketing. They've done a really great job of getting a product out, um, and, and you as a small brewer, you know, you're competing with, with that kind of marketing. Um, you know, when you're bringing out an imperial stout or even a stout, yeah, look, that's something we, we don't really do, can't afford for the most part, is marketing. Um, mm. We sort of rely on the, the old, you know, make great beer and, and hope that people will pay attention. And to an extent, that's right. But I think for the most part, you can't rely on that any day, anymore all the time. Um, mm. You need to do something, and that's where yeah. social media comes in. And not that we, you know... We don't really tweet as much as we probably should, and we don't Facebook as much as we should. Um, but it, again, it's you know, it's time consuming, and it's it's not difficult. And you try and maintain a conversation. But I don't, you know, during the course of a business day, I don't have time to look at tweets really. Yeah, yeah. So occasionally take photos to send to the wife to upload. And that's about it, really. So you can make great beer, but you got to get it in people's hands, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's look. That's where something I think the best thing that that. Um, that we've had is you know, a beer like Ramjet certainly captured people's imagination about what barrel-aged imperial stouts could be um, from a local market perspective. And I think that's that's sort of allowed us a little bit of extra airtime as far as what what we're doing. Um, and hopefully some of the, the sour beers that, that come out with, yeah, in the next, you know, probably 8 to 12 months will be do a, do a similar sort of thing. The last couple of good beer showcases, uh, the Ramjet has won the People's Choice. Is that the right one? Is yeah, look, I think, yeah. Do you yeah. know how that's adjudicated? Uh, I, I think it's purely from people filling out a little form, a little form saying, I like this one. And um, do you know how many people have gone through there? Not really. I've got no idea. I don't <laughs> <know> <laughs> attention. Because no. um, I mean, that's quite a good endorsement, though. Because whenever you go to those events, you sort of see a pretty... Decently varying demographic around, so um, I think yeah. also previously it's been pale ale sort of won those thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, seeing you know four or five years of pale ale winning people's choice to being a an imperial stout at ten percent barrel aged. It's a I don't know if it signifies a shift in the market, but it's it's interesting, I guess. Yeah, true. Look, I think that's something that I remember when when the the wasn't good beer showcase back then, but it was the the, Vic the, Feds, micro, the Vic Mar- yeah, micro showcase right. where it was. You're right, it was always pale ales and maybe a wheat beer or something like mm. that. And then it changed to the Good Beer Showcase. Whether that's the demographic or the people who, who really ardently follow Good Beer Week thought, mm. let's get along. But I think the breweries that started showing their beers, and whether that's just a change in, in brewery mindset as well, I think gone are the days. When we first started out in 2009, as a contract brewer, 
we thought let's do a pale ale because it's going to be, you know, it's a mm. sort of bit of a, a sensible business decision for that. And the most breweries had a pale ale, maybe a stout, a wheat beer, but the word IPA hadn't no. even existed in, in people's local vocabulary, really. Excuse me. Um, and I think looking at last year's Good Beer Showcase with Kaiju, with all their you know, hopped-out reds, and, the, no. um, and then obviously you've got uh, Ramjet, then you've got other people with double IPAs, you've got other, you know, Cavalier with their Imperial Stout. The, the market is evolving and the, the palate's evolving and we're mm. definitely getting better beers in front of more people. Um, still room for more beers and, and better again, but mm. it's definitely, yeah, it's a, a massive shift in, in over that five-year period between the, the Vic Showcase to, to last year um, to, to the Good Beer Showcase is pretty Oh, it is huge, isn't it? Yeah. I've probably only been going to the showcases since the Vic Showcase in about maybe 2011. Yeah. So even those, like, few years, really, yep. it's a huge change. Oh, it is. And it's, it's only for the better, definitely. We should, I uh, should jump in here for non-Melbourne listeners. Oh, we have, a, we have a few of those. Yeah, we? we do have a few of those. Yeah. We, we've copped a couple of complaints before about, you know, Melbourne content. We have a... a Biennial showcase is it still Correct. biennial? Yeah, yeah. October um, and March. Well, so, it, yeah, that's right. Yeah. With the exception of this year, when when once we, we we couldn't pull it together in time, yeah. and, and there was too many clashes between uh, Sydney Craft Beer Week, which is on now, and, yeah. and the date that we could have it. But there's going to be a, a cracker of one uh, in March next year. Yeah, so um, it happens March October traditionally, yeah. and it's you know local uh, Victorian beers showcasing their beers, just a sort of a an easy going after work kind of festival yeah, um, yeah. yeah. there's a, a, a rumour that I'll start now <laughs> I'm right. on the committee yeah. so I can we enjoy getting yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. scoop <laughs> but um, next year's uh, March showcase will be a launch of Good Beer Week as well mm. but the, the programme plus it will feature some interstate brewers cool oh great so it'll be really extended cool. beyond the Victorian focus which mm. I think is well I guess the um, <laughs> I was going to say shackles but that's kind of a negative word to use but um, going from Victorian micro brewery showcase to just good beer uh, showcase is uh, a little more freeing I guess uh, yeah it? look and that's what we realised has to happen because at, at the end of the day look, I, I, yeah, I live in Victoria and yeah I love it but you know <laughs> it's, it's at the end of the day it's about the beer industry as a whole mm-hmm. and promoting Australian beer as a whole needs to be done by the, the good beer week charter so mm. that's why we shows to, to extend it I think well I so. think the people that like us who are a little bit further in the scene than a lot of just the punters when that happens I'll be going to all the non-Victorian stalls before the Victorian ones yeah definitely and and yeah. we saw um, what <laughs> <laughs> sorry we'll go to Boat Rocker first and yeah. then after Boat Rocker yeah. and the all our friends and Hendo <laughs> overnight we should mention that Sydney Craft Beer Week there was the their awards awards the Did you Craft have any Beer no we, we we're going, we, long story, but we actually, we, uh, look, I don't want to uh, berate or belittle uh, CBIA. But you're about but, to? But the time yeah. frame they gave us to, to, from announcement of the awards to entries being submitted, we, we just didn't have time. Mm. We, we, with our production run and when, when our production was scheduled, we just, for what we wanted to enter, was not feasible. Because we didn't want to enter the Pale Ale or the... Yeah, you know, the Alpha Queen or the, the the Smash. We wanted to have something a bit more extreme, but the, the time frame take. Mm-hmm. We wanted some barrel beers. We wanted ideally, and this wasn't wasn't going to 
work for us, unfortunately. Mm. Who won out of interest? Uh, yeah, so uh, mo- yeah. Modus Operandi, which is very three, new on the scene, three months old, okay, um, out, of, out of Sydney, just I think on the suburbs of Sydney. Um, we had a couple of their beers mm. recently, Dave and I, and they were seriously good. Okay, um, wow, fantastic. You so, actually told more of a story with your facial expression then, but this is an audio medium, so <laughs> what was my facial expression? They were very, they were, yeah, it was very good beers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, had, I, I hope it didn't look like I was like. No, 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 no. Was, but I don't think you were really conveying how good <laughs> it was. Uh, but we had some friends from Sydney mule down some. Uh, they do crowlers, uh, crowlers. which are like okay. a one-liter uh, can growler where they seal up. You know, you fill it. Oh, and the yeah, seal yeah. It up. yep. Okay, fantastic. Uh, and the ones that we had, we had the dark lager, which I think was the one that won champion beer. Was it? Yeah, I think <laughs> oh, so. I can't remember. This, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we had three, I think, and they're all really solid beers. So yeah, it's fantastic. good. It's well, kind of fun to see them. Absolutely, up, and, yeah. and Sydney's been a very fickle craft beer market. I mean, you've, in recent years you've had Young Henry's, um, then I suppose there's yeah, Riverside. Riverside, Riverside yeah. In Sydney, yeah. <laughs> I've got that right. Um, we've had a couple of beers. So, so. And then, yeah, yeah, so there's, there's and then obviously Modus Operandi, and then like, mm. there's Nomad Brewing started yeah. up. So it's really sort of the scene is developing mm. in Sydney, which is good. So except for a while, it was a bit of a wasteland. Mm. Um, not wasteland, but it was much harder to find good craft beer yeah, venues. Yeah. And they've, they've sort of, it, Melbourne's been ahead a little bit. It seems to be living in Victoria or Melbourne. I'm noticing there's a lot more breweries in, in New South Wales and Queensland and even um, in WA and in South Australia that I haven't heard of and I'm seeing them pop up and doing really good beers. Yeah, so it's exciting, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, which is why at the showcase, straight after I've gone to Boat Rocker, I want to head to all the uh, non-Victorian ones. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think the, the best thing, the most exciting thing that I see as a brewer is that the more better brewers we have in Australia, the better everyone becomes because mm. the, the bad are just going to fall off. Yeah, unless they improve, in which case they'll get better. So if they get better, then everyone's going to get better, and if not, then the bad will disappear. So it's a it's a win-win for everyone. So the more better brewers we have in Australia, the better that the beer drinking will be. Yeah, and I guess as a drinker, I want to see more great beers coming out. I, you know, I don't want to have to look to Belgium. I don't want to have to look to the United States. I want to be able to come down the road and get a local beer at a local pub. That yeah. also ties into, because um, Luke used to operate the Pouring in Melbourne Twitter account, which okay, used yep, to highlight yep. some great tap lists that are around the grounds. Yep. And then the just the amount of great tap lists and work became too much. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that was indicative that like on any given... Friday afternoon, you could go to most places and get some amazing choices. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's a really Which positive is, thing. Yeah. And I think it was only, it took a year between, you know, I could cover all of Melbourne on a Friday afternoon to, I can't even dream to cover what's good because there's so much good stuff around it. Yeah, so. yeah. Which is a good good, good sign, I think, for the industry. Yeah. I remember there's a, there was a um, Good Beer Week commercial video promo, whatever it was called, where, what shit beer geeks say. Ah, uh, yep. Um, and very funny as by itself, but there was a T-shirt that Crafty wore, and and said, "Fuck imports." What <laughs> F dash dash K imports? Yeah, you know, support or drink, drink locally brewed beer or something like that. And it was for a bar that just serves American craft beer. And I don't know anyways. No, no, no Australian bars quite probably there yet I think to, yeah. to have something like that but I don't think our beer is there yet either mm. so hopefully in the next 10 years our beer can get to that point where I, I love imports and I love great beer and it's always good to have them but I'm I'm always mindful that, that the balance needs to be firmly in favour of the mm. locals to get their 
their quality and the sales up. But mm. you need the imports just to be able to see what's happening overseas. Otherwise, you become closed-minded. And yeah, you, you don't want to um, you don't want to shut yourself away from you know what's happening in New Zealand, America, Belgium. You know, yeah, sort of England especially. England as well. Yeah, yeah, stuff yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, I um, think the next the next big thing is Germany. I know this is sounds left of field, but they're starting some. Well, yeah. I, I had a bit of a rant, another not a rant, but a small sort of about you know the German beer venues, the you know Hop House or whatever they're called. So that was a justified rant, though. Yeah. Um, and they all bring in the same beers. You go to any any German place and yep. and anywhere, and they've all got the same ten beers, and we all know what they taste like, and it's it's a little bit boring. But then you look at what's happening in Germany and there's a lot of really interesting beers. And the first place to actually say, hang on, let's go on and get interesting German beer is going to do really well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's something I'm really right. I mean, I, I walk past the, the Hop House or the Munich Beer House, whatever. Yeah, I think there's two in there. Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> but they're both massive barns for, you know, over 400 people or more. I think the, is it the Munich Beer House that's meant to license for 900? Oh, jeez. Can you just go... That's, that's too many hundred. <laughs> oh, no, it is. It's just, it is. You just go, how... That's just crazy. But it'll be popular for a bit, and in five years' time, unless they, you know, I can see it's a sort of, you know, burning cash, basically, trying to pay their rent on, yeah. on Docklands. But there are an amazing... Uh, there's a, a global craft brewers association started up, um, and they held their first... Uh, conference and awards in Berlin hmm. and the amount of German craft brewers that are popping up and look I think the Germans have been obviously they've been held back a lot by legalities and the Reinheitsgebot and everything else as well as just the mindset that if it's not a lager it's not beer and, and that's and that's a, unless depending on which region of Germany yeah. you're living in etc <laughs> but uh, it's 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 one of those things that you know how can I have oats and hmm. you know this and that and everything else in my beer. That's but it's a it's a mindset that's changing now that they're part of the EU. That the, the legalities aren't there anymore to keep that in place. So it's exciting. I think one of the um, the big misnomers is the Reinheitsgebot is a massive problem. But you know most of your beers would fit under that in terms of you know you can brew an IPA an American style IPA under that. Uh, absolutely, um, yeah. And they're kind of caught in that weird tradition, almost cliche. Like we have to brew to this. But fruit, fruit's not allowed. Fruit's not um, allowed. Well, a lot of beers that aren't allowed, that I, I, our beers, for the most part, would be, yeah. um, to an extent. But we'd be pushing the boundaries with, well, with this, we've got, um, we've got flaked, yeah, we've got some f- a small amount of flaked oats, um, plus some other bits and pieces. Then we want to add, cho- we haven't added chocolate to this one, but it's a, that's a beer for next year. We've got, I'll give you some chocolate on the way out to give you some energy. We've got, a good, uh, we've got 50 <laughs> kilos of some quite expensive uh, ivory coast cocoa liquor and cocoa liquor is the the purest form of, of cocoa chocolate it's like really really it's like they've had removed the fat um, and then they've just got a, a chunk of raw chocolate so you, it's incredibly bitter and very very chocolatey mm. um, but you melt it down it just smells and tastes Delicious, and just eating it is, is beautiful. So, so we're gonna we're gonna see that one of your beers soon. There'll be a chocolate stout next next winter. What, what a great scoop that is! W- winter's winter's going to be a, a very busy year for us. I think we've got a lot of barrel stuff that needs to come out. Ramjet, barley wine. We um, should um, is mention- the chocolate stout going to go into barrel, or is that going to be uh, look? I've had is it the I had a beer a little while ago from Jolly Pumpkin. 
that actually used some chocolate. I think it was and some dark brown Madrigata ob, obs, obs, obscura. I think. Can't remember what it was, but it was bloody delicious. And it was just a little bit of the aroma more of the chocolate rather than the an intense deep rich. But it was again, it was a barrel aged beer that was. Mm. A little bit tart, not not hugely, but just had some really nice spiciness and complexity. Um, so I'd like to, but the reality, my, my gut tells me I'd be better off making a, a like a, a quite rich, decadent chocolate stout. Um, mm. Trying to really emphasise that that chocolate texture. Mm. There's always a market for those. Yeah, mm. definitely, yeah. definitely. Well, uh, I think. Uh, oh, sorry, I want to say one more thing. We had a taste of the barley wine before we. Um it's the one you're going to condition until you you think it's ready. So you've bottled it, you've labelled it, but it's conditioning for realistically March to April next year, just to the yeah, just as the weather starts chilling off at night time. And that's barrel aged whiskey barrel aged in yep. Pedro Jimenez barrels, yep. uh, ex ex Pedro Jimenez barrels and ex whiskey barrels. They the distillery uh, New World Distillery uh, in Essendon um, bought a whole lot of uh, Pedro Jimenez barrels, put their whiskey, the Starwood whiskey, into it. And then the distillery decided that the, the Pedro Jimenez character for the was too hard to get a constant supply, I think, of, of the Pedro Jimenez barrels, so mm. it was easier to get uh, red wine barrels. So they're, they're removing the, the Pedro Jimenez barrels from their, their lineup, and so they offered us the chance to buy Fortunate them. Fortunate so, for brewers around here. Yeah. Yep. So we, we, could, we took what we could afford, um, and, uh, yeah, and we just put some barley wine, let it sit for a few months. That was tasting really good too. Yeah, I think yeah. that was um, for me one of the highlights of the day. Which you know we taste it's a lot of the, beers. and the day is full of highlights. So far yeah, it's been well. a lot of great beers. And that, I might take this out. chance to say that this 2013 Ramjet is like beyond good. So if anyone's got bottles, just just hang on to them for a little while. I've got a bottle at home that I'm probably going to hang on to. For yeah, I've got a couple, couple years. Yeah, so. because uh, yeah, this is really really good. All right, before we wrap up, Matt, do you want to do you have anything you want to add to uh, the discussion about beer or, or what you guys have got coming up? Um, no, but no, I mean, fuck, I, I talk I talk forever about beer. <laughs> um, but the, look, thank, thanks for doing what you're doing because I think at the end of the day, the more people who get in the face of brewers and get the message out to the to, to public about what we're doing and 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 the fact that you guys enjoy beer and you you love it to the point that you're selling it and talking about it and want to know more about it is fantastic. So thank you. It's good to have compliments. <laughs> oh, likewise, it's good to good for people to enjoy our product as well. So that's yeah. great. All right, should we wrap it up? I there? think so. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, Thank should you. Should we do some plugs? Do you have anything to advertise? No. no Buy all the beers <laughs> yeah, from Boat Rocker. Get, get into some Boat Rocker. Um, there's some very interesting beers that we've tasted and some really enjoyable beers. Um, we should shout out to Toe Hider. We keep forgetting, don't we? Uh, who do our theme music. They have got a show coming up. I should put this out before Halloween. Um, I'll link to the show. I can't remember where it is, but they're doing a Halloween show somewhere. <laughs> Worst plug ever, but yep. thank you to so no, I'll, I'll link yeah. it. Look on the Facebook or okay, the, great. the website. Um, we've got a mead blog, which is about to start. So it's australianmead.wordpress.com. Um, so if you don't know out. about mead, and you probably don't because there's no information around, yep. stay tuned. We don't know about mead either, but we'll learn a lot. We'll try way. and find out, yeah. 
Um, so you don't have to. Um, if you want to get uh, to us for any of your... Now, we put out a shout for some non-Victorian news pieces. They haven't been rolling in. We've had so nothing. maybe, yeah, zero emails. So if anyone wants to know anything, uh, if they've got local news, whether you're... Where was the place that we had listeners that we thought was quite funny? Uh, Kuala Lumpur. Kuala Lumpur. Any news from KL? Come on, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, send it to Dave at aleofatime.com or Luke. Alivertime.com uh, Or our producer Emma Alivertime At com. She's not here today um, But she's been receiving Some emails so Yes That's quite funny email She's going to email But not us So um, Yeah Why do you hate us uh, You can get me on Twitter At MelbDave And at Alivertime For me And Facebook Slash Alivertime Facebook.com Slash Alivertime That was an ideal Great Let's finish up Alright Thanks everyone